Tonight is Sunday, February the 12th, 2006, and the Sunday night speakers meeting of Narcotics Anonymous welcomes our first speaker, Cheryl B. Hi, I'm an addict. My name is Cheryl. Hi, Cheryl. And I want to thank God for another day clean, and I want to thank the Rooms of Narcotics Anonymous for giving me another day, and um, and I thank my God for allowing me to wake up again one more day. Um, <clears throat> I come from you from my home group is Sunday Morning Circle. It meets on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and I welcome anyone to town or wherever they are to uh, come join us. Uh, I came around Narcotics Anonymous um, when there were very few meetings. Uh, we traveled from Santa Monica to Los Angeles to Culver City. There were maybe two two meetings or so a week um, in the different areas. I got clean in 1986 and um, it was amazing that uh, the meeting that we were that I attended this morning, we talked about the fact that um, I, 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 was, I was somewhere on Friday night and uh, our area actually had an event. And at the time that we did the countdown, um, the room was huge. And I looked around at all the people that also were celebrating uh, 20 years. And those are the people that I actually grew up in the rooms with. And it, it, it dawned on me that I've, I've uh, uh, sustained relationships um, in these rooms for 20 years. People that I got clean with, people that have stayed, we just stayed close and um, and I love them just like I loved them back there. We made a pact. And what I found out that this is a simple program for complicated people. And I got to this program with um, a little education enough to say that I, I was a little cut above, I thought. And they told me that I had to put all of my books to the, to the side and, and uh, grab hold of the basic text. And at the time that we had the basic text, it just uh, I still have my first edition, and um, and I cherish it, and I still keep it because I have a lot of people's phone number, and they say that the road get narrow, gets narrow as you stay clean, and it has because there are people that I just never, I don't know what happened to them from the time that you know we get, we got in, but um, I didn't come to these rooms real willingly. Willingly, I came to the rooms because I just got tired of what I had. I came through the rooms uh, by way of a lot of institutions and jails. It says around here that you talk about what it used to be like, what happened, and how we, how it is today, and um, and that's what I'll attempt to do. Um, I came, I grew up in a time where um, black wasn't always beautiful. I uh, grew up in a time when child abuse was okay. Uh, leaving your kids alone in the car was okay. I got left in the car a lot, a, a lot, and uh, I, I laugh about that now because all of the different things that happened today. But um, I grew up in a household that uh, was nothing but but women, but we except for my father. We, I have two sisters and no brothers, and I always really wanted a brother. My sisters, um, I was a, I'm a middle child, so I I grew up with that middle child syndrome. 
One sister's name is Pammy, one sister's name is Paula, and I thought the two P's that it was Precious Pammy, um, Precious Pammy, um, Perfect Paula, and Poor Cheryl. That's <laughs> and that's how I felt. And I, and I found out when I got here that it was okay to talk about that because, you know, you say that middle, middle child is syndrome, but if you're a middle child, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, we, all, we all gravitated to my father. We all wanted his attention because he was the positive person in the family. We, I grew up with a lot of chaos, and I, and I grew up where you don't talk about what happens outside of your home. It was taboo. It was our business, nobody else's business. Um, I grew up with a society mob. We, we attended, she took us to all the, the, uh, the modeling agencies to teach us how to to be a lady and taught us how to walk and who to talk to and, and all, they were paving the way for us to one day grow up to, to, to meet our perfect uh, mate, be a doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, or somebody, you know. And uh, my, my man, he was, uh, he was a dope thing. I gravitated to what I thought was the uh, hip slicking cool crew. I didn't want anything to do with the squares. I wanted what where I wanted to be with who I thought the fun came from. I had a um, I grew up with a skin disease, and I was born with it. My father had asthma, and we and I was born with it. So all I did all my life as a child is scratch, cough, and sneeze. It was really bad, and it looked like leopard skin or lizard skin or whatever. My parents had a ritual. Um, they would put us put ointment on our body and they would wrap us up in cellophane and a sock and they would tie us up. And that was to stop us from scratching, you know, to where it would damage us. And I remember during the night when it really, when I itched, I scratched and I took the sock off, I took the cellophane off and I scratched till it, to the meat. And this is how I had to go to school as a child. and. And it was, uh, it was torture. Um, even though I had these uh, things on my body, my mother still dressed us up with, um, with bobby socks and oxfords. And I grew up at a time where girls couldn't wear pants to school. Believe me, if I could wear pants, I would have wore pants every day with turtleneck sweaters and long sleeves down to my fingertips. But I couldn't do that. I didn't have that luxury. So when I went to school, of course, you would always find somebody there that's going to make the make the class joke out of me. And um, <clears throat> my mother would tell me when we got, when I would get home and I would cry and I'd say, I don't want to go to school. I hate these people because hate was my very first uh, feeling that I got in touch with. I, got, I hated everybody that laughed at me. I hated my mother for making us to go to school. And I hated the fact that I was born with this, this rash or this, dis, this disfigurement. And I had to uh, display it as like a, it was just terrible. And so she would say these things like, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And you know, I got to Narcotics Anonymous and I realized that was such a crap of crap because I hurt. I knew then as a, as a child that that hurt me when people said things about me. Today being clean, I always, I can, it's real easy to say that it doesn't bother me what people feel about me. But the other side, some things it does. And, you know, I, as a child, I went to the doctor. They told me that there's nothing they could do about this disease. <clears throat> we were born with it. It would just come. It was it's hereditary. 
and that you grow out of it. And I was five and six years old when I was told this, and they told me that it wouldn't be cured until I was 18 or 19 years old. And that was a long time to have to go through that. So I, I, I just knew that life had just dealt me, God had just dealt me a wrong hand, and I was cursed for life. That's how I felt. So I put everything I had into the books, and I read a lot. I, I, I believe that I was an addict way before I picked up, because I loved to escape. I loved to watch a movie and become that character. I loved to talk to somebody and become them, anything other than what I, who, I, who and what I was. And that's what I did. I got into the band, into the orchestra, and I played the violin. My parents gave me lessons, and I traveled all over. But I didn't want the violin. I wanted what these people in my class at the at the quad were want, looked like they had. And they didn't have any books in their hands. They didn't have any pencils on their ear. They had cigarettes, and we knew we couldn't smoke. And the minute I saw them is what I gravitated to. Because I knew then that I wanted something other than what I had, and it just, and I wanted to be, I wanted to fit in, and I didn't want to fit into the good society. I wanted to fit into the, to the hip bad society. I was drawn to the drama, and I was going to set out to do whatever I had to do to to join. There was no initiation. There was nothing. All you had to do was don't go to class and don't do anything. And the first thing that had to do had to go with the violin. I didn't want anybody to see that I played the violin, and I didn't tell them I played the violin. I just, I just changed. Another thing is, I got clean. I realized how much I loved music and how I was, a, I was so willing to sacrifice all my dreams for 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 a new life, of fitting in to the crowd that I thought really loved me. All I really wanted to do was to be loved, and I didn't want it from the people that I had to stay in the house with. I got my first case when I was 18 years old, and I've never been so proud of a case in my whole life. I got to go to school and tell them I had a probation officer. I got to tell them that my name was in the paper. I got to tell them how many felonies I got. And, you know, I, that was about the, <laughs> I just was so happy. And I heard somebody say, you know, that's a bad bitch. You know, she's got a heart. And I just thought that was so cool. Oh, that was cool. So I, saw, I set off on a mission. And I did whatever it took to be that person, to be that person that would, you could dare me to do anything, and I was willing to do it. So as the book of Narcotics Anonymous, the basic text talks about that we will do these three things. We will go through jails and institutions, or we will die. <clears throat> I went out with the installment plan, and I started going into jails and institutions. And at that time, I had a child. And what I did is what a lot of women did at the time when they had a choice between their addiction or taking care of their child, I took the addiction. My child was with me as long as, 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 as I could until someone in my family said, oh no, not, not this. So my child was taken away from me. It gave me enough time to rip and run. Then I remember telling my friend at the age of 20, 22 years or so old, mm -hmm. I, and I said, you know what, I like this stuff so much because I, by this time I'm picking up. I had I didn't tell you that my father was a doctor. He had a pharmaceutical laboratory. And because I told you I sneezed, coughed, and scratched it all my life, it was perfect uh, business for him to be in, a, a perfect profession. So every time I sneezed, he gave me a pill. Every time I coughed, he had some cough syrup. Every time I, you know, every, anything, it was, I, was, 
I could have been a perfect hypochondriac. My older sister definitely is. She's a normie. She's, you know, hypochondriac. But, <laughs> but you know, there, what I'm just saying is I had these things that I always were able, was able to take. So I, I started pills way before I didn't even know, you know, what it really did. And one thing led to another. And my father told me then, he said, you know what, Cheryl, if you do weed, or you do pills, you're going to go to the next thing. And I said, oh, you, you don't know what you're talking about. But every time something got introduced to me, I said, okay, let me try it out. It could have been rat poison. But if they said, hey, we got something new for you, Cheryl, I said, let me try it out. So I, I, I got into real estate. Of all things to, to be in, uh, it would, would, what an odd profession to be in as an addict dealing with people's life possessions and hopes and dreams and here's this attic and I when I was an escrow officer and and uh, and I and I smoked and I drank and I did whatever it took and I tried to show up to to my job as much as I could uh, the name of this company was called View Heights escrow and um, we used to I used to uh, get to the point where I never really told, wanted to tell people that I smoked sherm but um, I would take I would have an hour for lunch, and I would go way across town, pick up a sherm stick, smoke it, and come back to sit at my desk, and I'm going to take care of business for the rest of the day. <laughs> I told you the first word in the in the in the name of the company was view, which is kind of hard to say anyway if you if you're not even you know if you're not if you're straight. But the phone would ring, and I would look around, thinking, hoping, and praying that somebody else would answer, and nobody did. So I would pick it up. And I would say, boo by Bevo. <laughs> and the person on the phone would say, what did you say? And I would think, God, and I would get it together. Bible Bevo. <laughs> so needless to say, I was one of those addicts that could not function. I could not go to work and function like every human being. I was one of those that either you're going to get high or you're not going to get high. So consequently, I went from job to job to job. Once you know how to do a job, you can just go to the next one. You, I could fake it for just so long until they realized that I was an addict. And I did whatever it took to keep my habit going. And I told my friends, you know, I like this stuff so much that I think I'm going to get high until I'm about 30. And uh, I never heard of an addict that puts a time limit on their disease. Because by this time, I have no idea when I crossed that invisible line. But I crossed it, and I was a stone-cold addict. And I lived to use and used to live very simply. And so when I turned 30, I said, I think I'll give it another year. You know, but by this time, I've married me a normie because, see, we go through people. The, the people closest to me was the ones that I, that I got. I got them. You know, if they laid anything down, I took it. Anybody I encountered, I, I burned them. So I thought that, as the book said, we try everything. So my last try was well, the next to the last try was Mary and Normie. That's the answer. And boy, did I get him to the other fellowship fast. And uh, he had to help himself because by the time I went through everything he had, he realized what an addict was. And they told him, if you need help, we have people for people that are uh, we have help for the people that are suffering from the addict, you know. And I I hated that. I hated them, and I hated that he had his own meetings to go to, and I hated everything about it. And when I would go on my runs and I'd come home, he would take my son to the meetings with him. And I'd come home after three or four days and they would say, hi, hi, my son would say, hey, mommy, 
We prayed for you last night. Oh, Lord, please don't get, don't, don't pray. Please don't say that. And then I'd see my husband and he'd say, you know, go take yourself a bath. We got something to eat. See, I didn't like that kind of behavior. I'd rather come home, whip me, hit me, let's throw some stuff around. But don't, don't, don't pray for me. Don't give me that. That was just, I was already feeling bad enough. You know, and it was just like the knife was going in because see what was happening is I was getting to the end of my run. It was no longer fun anymore. The party I attended when I first picked up, it was over, it was long over. I was still hanging outside the party trying to get the music back on. It was over. There's a guy in LA that talks about the jig being up. The jig was up, but I was still holding on because see, I didn't want to be left at all with these feelings I felt inside. And every time I came down, I felt the feelings of guilt, demoralization, uh, just everything. And I did not want to feel that. So I stayed high. When that marriage ended, I had, another, had had another child because I told you I needed, I was thinking of anything that would keep me together. And I brought this second child in the, into the world and I wasn't even taking care of the first one. So when that, my, when that marriage ended, he came to me, my husband, and he said, Cheryl, I want you out of our lives. And I had heard those words before because my father, who I adored, told me, Cheryl, just get out, scoot, move. You know, those, those, those words that, you know, just would cut me, like somebody just took a knife and cut. And that's what this man said. And he says, and you know what? On your way out, you leave Patrick. And Patrick was a baby. He was three, he was only three months old. But I chose my addiction over him. And when he saw me hesitate for a minute, for a minute, he said, I, he threw something in. He said, I'll give you $10,000 to just get out. And remember, I'm clean, it's 20, almost 20 years. So back then, $10,000 was a lot of money. And I, and you know, but I grew up with a mother that said, you are less than a woman if you go off and leave your kids. And I heard her saying that in one ear, and I heard the guilt saying, you don't do that. But my addiction says, and the disease that's centered in my thinking said, you sign those papers. And I signed them. And he doesn't even know that he, if he would have offered me $1,000, I probably would have did the same thing. So when I left that attorney's office, the bank was right next door. I went and cashed my check, went to the dope house. On the way to the dope house, the commercial was on the radio, and it said, would you sell your kid for a rock? I said, now, what's the coincidence of you hearing something like that on the radio at the time when you had just did something like that? My heart just went out. I felt like nothing. I felt lower than nothing. I got to the dope house, and that $10,000 lasted two weeks. Two weeks. I owed the dope man money already. By the time I got over there, you know, I'm a, I'm a hip slicker coo. I like to flow show. I like to, you know, tell you how much I got it going on. And they were all so happy to see me. But you just, you know, when the dope, when the, when you got the dope, everybody's happy to see you. And I noticed that as the dope drizzled, the faces and the people started disappearing. And when the dope was gone, they was gone. And when I had no, when, when there was nothing else left, they showed me to the door. And that, you talk about feelings, and they said narcotics and honors, you, you better get in touch with your feelings and you get in touch with them fast. Because see, I knew I, what I was feeling out there. I had to just bring all those feelings when I got it, got clean. Shortly after that, of course I went to jail again. 
I had been to these recovery houses and there were places that I went to that were not 12-step orientated. So they would tell me things like, it's okay to drink, just don't hit the pipe. They would tell me things and so I thank God for the places that are out here today. And it, you don't have to always go through a recovery house to get the message, but I hope and I pray that if you be new, you get the message and you get it through these 12 steps and through, and through the literature that Narcotics Anonymous provides. And I had choices on where to go. I just found my glitch here in, in Narcotics Anonymous and that's where I've been ever since. But I went to this recovery house and this time, I used to, I told you that I grew up with a good family and they provided and I had this and I had that. But they say there's a passage in the book that also says that some of us has to lose everything. They say some of the stuff or half of the stuff. They said everything in order to adhere to this program. And that's the type of addict I was. I had to lose my family because all the material things had been gone. Anything that was sellable, I sold. And if it was yours and you had anything to sell, I sold that too. So I had a lot of amends to make when I got here and I didn't feel real good, but I got myself a sponsor and she said stuff like, Cheryl, you know what? You can't, you're not responsible for that. You did what you had to do as an addict. Now let's talk about what you're gonna do about your disease today. And they, and they said, if, you, if you're a little girl and you, and you see this little girl on the rock and she's crying and she's damaged and she's, and she's hurt, would you go and pick up a rock and hit her again? And I said, no. And she said, well, stop beating yourself. I'll never forget those words. And I had to remember that, yes, okay. So they said, you sit up in the front and you put the cotton in your mouth and you open those ears and you listen. And you listen to learn. And you listen like the dying. Don't talk to the people that talk of negativity. Talk about and, and gravitate to the people that want recovery. They said, matter of fact, don't talk at all. Because when you talk, all you do is lie. And if we want to hear about the disease, we'll ask somebody. So in the meantime, just shut the fuck up. And that's how I hated the way they talked to me back then. But they had real tough love. Uh, was, it was just, it was kind of, it was tough. And I went to the recovery house. It was in Pasadena, and they w we went to 17 meetings a week. We, we slept, and we awoke. We awakened to meetings. We just, everything was meetings, steps, meetings, sponsor, get phone numbers. Everywhere you went. You had to, you, we just went around recovery people, and my life began. They told me, that Cheryl, you have to cut the, the, the cord with your family, because your family has always been your enabling person. They, 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 they as soon as you start getting, uh, looking better, feeling better, they start trying to rescue you. Cut the cord, Cheryl. And I thought, I took that really, you know, hard, because I thought, you don't tell me what to do with my family. But I understand that now. So everything that they told me, it took me some time to realize and understand that they just had my best interest at heart. So when it was time to leave the recovery house, and I left, and I left before, because technically it had been my third, second time there. So it was time for me to leave, and, and I'm looking for a ride, and I didn't have one. So I called my normie sister up, and I told her, I'm in front of this recovery house. It's raining. Could you pick me up? And she told me uh, she was with a client, and would could I call her back? I thought you, you know. But then I, the light went on. It said they didn't tell the programs didn't say call your normie sister up, who doesn't know anything about this program. The program said use some of those phone numbers. And as I thought that, my hand went into my coat, and out came the phone numbers. 
of all these addicts that I had gotten and met throughout the meeting time. And I just picked up the first one, and it was a lady named Carmine who lived in Santa Monica. Now I'm in I'm in Pasadena, and I said, Carmine, I, you know, this is what happens. Can you pick me up? And she said, I'll be right there. So, so I had to, you know, the program, all those things that they had told me about, started coming to coming true. They said that if you reach out, if you get to a meeting, you'll get a ride home. If you stick with winners, you'll be a winner. Meeting makers make it. All those cliches that I really didn't like at the time because it was I didn't get clean the first time. It took me two years before it before it stuck. And it, those two years were sure uh, sheer hell because I fought this thing tooth and nail. I thought I had to have my husband to come take me to the meeting. He's a normal. He don't know anything about the meeting. And I got to the point where I didn't need him to come with me anymore. I walked by one of the first meetings I went to was a meeting out in Venice. And I walked into that meeting, and it seemed like I walked into the Staples Center. It was, you know, it was just so huge. It just seemed like I. It took me a year to get to from the front door to a chair. And then late, you know, later on in my clean time, I go to that meeting. I thought this meeting is small, but at the time it just seemed like it was huge because I was afraid. But they said it's okay to be afraid because we all go through this. My, my, my. Um, process through this recovery thing has not always been smooth. It's been up and down, up and down. The father I talked about, he died when I was five years clean, and he died of cancer, bone cancer. So it was like I didn't even have a lot of time to prepare. He was he was diagnosed in March, and he had died in October. And, they, and you guys said, you don't have to get loaded no matter what, because I remembered that. So I stuck real close to the program and with my sponsor, and I got myself through that. You know, um, they told me to be to, to to get myself a service commitment. And I remember people coming in and out of the recovery houses on panel. So one of the first commitments I had was was H and I. And from that day to this day, I keep myself a service commitment because I found out that that helping other people helped helped me. Because when it was time for me to write my list of the people that I needed to meet people and people, places, and things to make my amends, there were place, there were people on that uh, list that there was no way in, in heck that I could have, uh, could go up to them without being killed or taken to jail. So those, my sponsor said, that's okay because there's other things that you can do for that. So I find gratitude when I do something for somebody else and not have to raise my hand and say I did it. When I'm at my lowest, the one thing that I always get satisfaction with is when I go to a recovery house and pick up a newcomer, because the newcomer always is just there so that I can, I can get outside myself. And it's not to say that I can't. I'm going to have to focus back on Cheryl, because this journey has been, been something else. You know, it has just been, it, it has been beyond my wildest dreams, way beyond my wildest dreams. My son Patrick, that I talk about. He's got more clean time than I do. He's a normie, but he was born, remember, he was three months old when I got clean. So he's, he'll, he'll be 20 years old. And now today, he doesn't even know what happened within that time. Because once I got clean, everything else came together. He doesn't even know what happened on that whole ordeal. Today he's in college. And I have another son who's coming up with one year clean. And he's struggled, but he's coming up on clean time, my, my oldest son. And from that join, he has a son that I take care of. So God always has a way of showing things up. Even though I was the, uh, a horrible mother, 
<clears throat> that doesn't make me be a horrible person. Because today I take care of my grandson, and he's five years old. Going on, I, he, I think he's, he's six years old. But he looks up to me like being the, being the, the, you know, he looks at me like I am the most uh, perfect person on this world. And, and you know what? When he looks at me and he says, Mina, I love you, I, I just know what love is. Those are the kind of things. I go all kind of places around, Narcotics Anonymous. Every time I go out of town, I find another Narcotics Anonymous meeting and I go to them because that's how you meet people. I work the steps, I work with my sponsor, I show up and I have this magnet on my, on my refrigerator and it says seven days without a meeting makes one week. And you have to look at that and you think about it and I say, okay, all right, I understand what you're talking about because seven days without a meeting for me, I start getting kind of real funny and I, and, and I start acting funny and my disease is, is always there to whisper in my ear and say, you know what, Cheryl? You haven't been to a meeting in a week, and it's okay. Let's make it two weeks. <laughs> you don't really have to go to these meetings anyway. You've been here long enough. And every time I think of that, and I know that it's the disease, I shake my head and I hurry to a meeting because I always have to look, look out for those voices, and those voices will tell me how to self-destruct in 20 seconds. And when I know for me to use is to take everything that I've worked for this long and just throw it in the trash can because that's just the type of addict I am. I have to be here for the other members of my family that are on their way because this disease is a family disease and I found out that it just runs rapid in my family. So I have to be there. I have to be here because I want to be here. I go here because there's people that, that are 45, 46 years clean. They still go to meetings. So what's the, what makes me so different? I go to meetings. I went to meetings until I wanted to go to meetings. And I go to meetings now because I live for them. Nothing Narcotics Anonymous has ever done to hurt me. Matter of fact, it's done nothing but make my life beautiful. So if there's anything that I can say to those that are newer than myself or those that struggle with this program, if you think that you're an addict and really don't know, you're an addict. If you think that you maybe need to be here, maybe, maybe not, you do need to be here. If you think that you uh, you have to do this thing alone, you don't, because it's a WE program and we do this together one day at a time. Thank you very much for allowing me to share.